Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. It's Ryan Tripp. I return to the Native American Studies channel with David Nichols, professor of history at Indiana State University. Today, we're going to be discussing his book published last year, Peoples of the Inland Sea, Native Americans and Newcomers in the Great Lakes Region, 1600 to 1870. Welcome to the show, Professor Nichols. Thank you, Ryan. It's great to be here. Before we jump into... uh, a couple of my questions. Can you address a little bit your selection of the cover of um, the um, paperback version of the book, uh, the cover art? It's uh, by George Bingham in uh, 1933. I'd like to uh, you know, what was the color cover selection and did you have any input or anything else? I selected the cover illustration in collaboration with my editors. And it was an image I had been familiar with for some time and thought it would be appropriate for this book because it shows a French-American trapper uh, and his biracial son canoeing down the Missouri River toward the confluence of that river and the Mississippi. And I thought that that nicely encapsulated some of the disparate peoples one encountered or could encounter in the Great Lakes region and Upper Mississippi Valley in the 18th and 19th centuries. Now, can you first elaborate on your introductory comment in your book that the primary goal of the book um, on the history of the Great Lakes uh, Native peoples is to explore two struggles, one for political independence within a world of foreign empires, and one for cultural survival in an environment vastly altered by European goods, diseases, animals, and people. Um, in addition to elaborating on that argument, how can you also uh, tell us how you define colonialism uh, vis-a-vis imperialism? Well, I'll take the second part first. I define, I define colonialism using an definition that Jürgen Osterhammel uh, devised in 2005, which is the systematic uh, subordination and exploitation of one ethnic group by a foreign ethnic group. It can be seen as congruent with imperialism, but imperialism occurs within a context of rivalry between different empires for control of subject peoples. And since you have that rivalry present, subject peoples who are, whose allegiance is being fought over have more opportunities than in just a simple colonialist scenario. And as I began my study, I wanted to connect it with two concerns of Native North Americans that are ongoing today. One is preserving the political sovereignty of indigenous nations, particularly in settler colonial republics like the United States, that are prone to denying that such sovereignty exists. And the other struggle is an ongoing struggle by indigenous peoples to preserve their independent cultural identity, festivals and creation stories and other collective observances that define them as unique peoples. So sovereignty and identity, 
I think one could summarize those two struggles as being. Can you further elaborate on another introductory contention that Lake's Indian history before 1600 was longer and more complicated than European invaders understood? That the rise of one complex culture did not preclude the rise of a successor culture in the future? Well, when Europeans first began to encounter the artifacts of pre-1600 Native American cultures in the Great Lakes region, they encountered a large number of monumental structures such as effigy mounds and temple mounds that were not typical of post-1600 Indian cultures. Europeans assumed that these were the artifacts of a pre-Columbian civilization that had either disappeared or had been destroyed by the simpler, as they saw it, indigenous peoples of their own era. And they coined the term mound builders for what they assumed was one civilization. As I note, Early in my book, modern archaeologists have determined that the mound builders were several different societies. They were all Native American, and each of them lasted for several centuries before they dispersed, and then were usually succeeded by another complex culture. Uh, The Hopewellians were succeeded by the Mississippians, who were succeeded by the Fort Ancient culture from about 1400 to 1700 in the last case. Since Native Americans And mound builders were actually the same people. And since their cultural history was cyclical rather than just a simple story of of rise and collapse, there's every reason to assume that that cycle would repeat itself if Europeans hadn't showed up and disrupted Native American lifeways in the region. Can you explain how, by the 1680s, the human landscapes of the Lakes region had changed considerably? You argue that the eastern districts, uh, like Huronia and the upper Ohio Valley, depopulated. The powerful Illinois Confederacy was besieged and damaged, and northern Michigan and Wisconsin were full of refugees. In the eastern lakes country, the land itself experienced rewilding. And in addition, what role did Iroquois and the French play in these dramatic alterations? Well, no European settlements were established in the Great Lakes region, no permanent ones anyway, until the end of the 17th century. But the newcomers had a profound impact on the Great Lakes region well before they established any settlements there. The French and the English both introduced epidemic diseases that devastated the Hurons and the Iroquois in the 17th century. The Iroquois replaced their losses through warfare, a type of warfare that historians refer to as mourning war, M-O-U-R-N, mourning war, which is warfare for captives to replace members of one's nation who have died. At the same time that this was going on, the French and Dutch traders were introducing merchandise uh, such as firearms and metal tools for which Native Americans had an enormous demand. And this demand led to armed conflict over access to trading sites and hunting grounds. So you have two sort of incentives for warfare that Europeans create in the 17th century. And that engender a great deal of internecine conflict, with the Iroquois being the primary antagonists in these conflicts due to, uh, in some ways, their central location between different Indian nations and different European powers. It was the Iroquois who dispersed the Hurons in the 1640s and 50s uh, and who decimated the powerful Illiniwek in the 1680s, uh, which 
by the, by themselves dramatically transform the human landscape in the region. So you hold that while the French were known as fathers and the Lakes Indians, children, generally described themselves as children, sought, generally sought mutual accommodation. Uh, these groups did not always succeed in such accommodation. Can you describe the economic and filial dimensions of this mutual accommodation, as well as the rivalry and conflict that periodically disrupted it? Well, in many ways, the convention that caused French and Great Lakes Indians to characterize one another as fathers and children was rarely more than a diplomatic convention, uh, resorted to by both sides for politeness's sake rather than as a reflection of the political and economic realities of their relationship. French officials were well aware that they absolutely depended on the Great Lakes Indians to maintain their own claims of sovereignty over the interior of North America, and more importantly, to keep the British penned up east of the Appalachian Mountains. And French traders and officials both knew that Indians had alternatives to French goods and French prices, if they weren't economically satisfied. So the French in the Great Lakes region went to great lengths to accommodate their Indian allies and trading partners' demands. They fixed trading prices, they used gift-giving and rituals of public contrition to resolve disputes, uh, a practice that the Ojibwas called covering the grave. And the French even received uh, and retained captives that were given to them by their own Indian trading partners, even when they knew that this would alienate the captives' kinfolk, an observation that the historian Brett Rushworth made in his 2012 book, Bonds of Alliance. There were certainly French settlers who were economically interested in retaining Native American slaves, but I think Rushforth very persuasively argues, and I, I pick up in his argument in my book, that when the French acquired Native American slaves, it was as much a concession to the allies who had given them those captives as to the demands of uh, French landowners within New France. How and why did French fears that the Pennsylvanians' presence in the Ohio country and the growing disaffection among the Southern Lakes Indians kindle the fires of the Seven Years' War? In your response, please try to address the significance of the smallpox e epidemic the uh, dissolution of the Franco-Native alliance, and then the revival of said alliance. France was afraid of British commercial infiltration into the eastern Great Lakes region from a fairly early date. One of the reasons why the governors of New France commissioned the construction of Fort Niagara early in the 18th century to try to block British infiltration. In the 1740s, Disgruntled French trading partners like the Miamis and the Wyandots tried to open their own commercial alliance with the colony of Pennsylvania. And this inspired Governor Ange de Montville Duquesne, for whom Fort Duquesne and later Duquesne University were named, who was the governor of New France, to order the construction of a fairly expensive line of forts in western Pennsylvania, essentially to block and control communication between the Atlantic seaboard and the eastern Great Lakes region. Now, this was also a region claimed by the British colony of Virginia, which wanted to colonize what is now western Pennsylvania. And when Virginia sent troops under the command of a fairly young George Washington 
to try to expel French soldiers from the region in 1754, it ignited an armed conflict, which eventually became part of a European and then a global war. France and its Indian allies enjoyed the upper hand in that conflict for several years. The Delawares and Shawnees and other raided English frontier settlements, and French and Ojibwa and other Native American fighters captured several well-defended British forts, most famously Fort William Henry, whose capture is detailed, if in fictional terms, in the novel The Last of the Mohicans. What disrupted the alliance almost fatally was a dispute over captive-taking in 1757, followed by a smallpox outbreak that killed thousands of Native people in the Upper Great Lakes region, and that took Indians in the region several years to recover from. By the time the French and Lakes Indian Partnership revived in 1759, France had suffered fatal reversals in other fronts of the North American and Global War. Quebec City was under siege by the time the alliance was revived. The French Atlantic Fleet was underwater, and in many ways, the military game was already up. And that disruption of the French and Lakes Indian Alliance uh, played an important role in weakening the French, but, but so did British military action. What were the impulses, nativist and otherwise, for the six, 1763 offensive campaigns during Pontiac's War? And if possible, can you touch on what happened between the plan of 64 and 1774, the year of Dunmore's War? Pontiac's War had a number of causes that in some cases overlapped and in other cases were independent. Uh, an Ojibwa war captain named Minabavana noted in a 1761 meeting with a British trader that Britain believed that it had defeated France's Lakes Indian allies along with the French, and those Lakes Indian allies didn't agree. They believed that they remained at war with Britain until that nation gave them gifts and ritually conciliated them. So that was one cause of Pontiac's war, that in fact the war between the Lakes Indians and Britain hadn't ended by 1763. A second cause, which was related to the first, is that the British commander-in-chief, Geoffrey Amherst, abruptly announced he was ending the old French practice of giving gifts to the Great Lakes Indians in 1761 thus closing the avenue to reconciliation. At the same time, Britain occupied all of the old French forts in the Great Lakes country and gave no signs of either leaving them or converting them to peaceful trading posts. And also in the early 1760s, a number of Great Lakes Indians were sharing accounts of the prophecies of Neolim, a Delaware Indian prophet who had spoken with the master of life, and who, who had told Neolin that he, uh, the great spirit, the master of life, wanted Native Americans to drive the British out of their collective homelands by force, if necessary. That he had created Indians to enjoy North America, and he had created the Europeans, and especially the British, to live in Europe, and the two should, people should be separate. Pontiac's war can be presented as a stalemate, though a lot of the Indian warriors who took part in it achieved their local objective of destroying a large number of British wars. And when that war ended, Great Britain adopted a more conciliatory policy. It proposed what you mentioned as the Plan of 1764, which was a plan for regulated trade by British traders in the Great Lakes region. 
And when Pontiac's war ended, dozens of traders, British traders, entered into the region and began supplying Native American communities there with inexpensive goods. Some of these traders, we might note, were Native Americans themselves. For example, Sally Einsef uh, was an Oneida Indian from Iroquois country in western New York, who eventually became a wealthy trader in Detroit. During the same time, Britain withdrew most of its troops from the Great Lakes region as an economy measure, which limited the degree to which Indians in the region could view the British army as an intrusive presence. And toward the end of that 10-year period, white hunters from Pennsylvania and Virginia began to intrude on the Shawnee's hunting preserve in Kentucky. This would eventually lead to Dunmore's War, but it also allowed Lakes Indians to begin differentiating uh, within the British population between those who were friendly to their interests, like traders and officials, and those who weren't, like hunters and white settlers. Why, at least in the early years of the conflict, when Lakes Indians fought the Revolutionary War, you argue they generally did so in pursuit of agendas that predated the fight between Britain and the rebellious colonists. And further, by 1780, why was a stalemate the best the Confederated Lakes Indians could expect? Well, it is true that some Native Americans entered into the Revolutionary War to honor old diplomatic ties with the British, with the Iroquois, who had uh, a century of diplomatic ties and alliances with Britain being the best example. Some were drawn in by the promise of payments of British goods and weapons, but many others were fighting in the war not so much to serve George III as to defend their homelands from white colonists who were intruding upon them. The Delawares and the Ohio Iroquois and the Shawnees in particular wanted to either protect or to recover settlements and hunting territories that white Anglo-American colonists had overrun in Kentucky and in western Pennsylvania. And I argue that stalemate became somewhat inevitable after 1780 because of the massive increase in the white settler population of Kentucky, especially after George Rogers Clark's expedition in 1778 and 9. The white population in Kentucky was positioned west of the Appalachian Mountains, so they didn't have the supply and mobility problems that white militias and armies east of the Appalachian Mountains might have suffered from. They were well-armed, and they were also very well fortified in an era when, without artillery, it was very hard to overcome even wooden fortifications. So this had become, or rather the white settler population in Kentucky had become by the early 1780s, a population that the Great Lakes Indians could not dislodge without foreign assistance, which was not really forthcoming. Can you elucidate the circumstances of the Lakes Indians' drafting of a message to Congress on behalf of the 1785, quote, United Indian Nations, with with the assistance of Mohawk War Captain Joseph Brandt? Further, how did a factional split in uh, this confederation contribute to the 1795 Treaty of uh, Greenville? After the Revolution, many Great Lakes Indian warriors concluded that Kentucky might be lost to the Americans, but the rest of the Ohio Valley, the Great Lakes region itself, need not be. 
And many of them decided in their conversations with one another to undertake a twofold strategy to keep white Americans out of the rest of the Ohio Valley. Part of the strategy was military. They would conduct deterrent raids on white travelers in the Ohio Valley and on the farmsteads that they established north of, and in some cases, south of the Ohio River. At the same time, war captains and chiefs would undertake a united, multi-tribal diplomatic opening to the Americans' government. Earlier in the 1780s, the United States had extorted several land cession treaties from such nations as the Delawares, the Iroquois, and the Ottawas. And leaders of the Lakes Indian nations now wanted to collectively pressure the United States Congress to override this. Referring to themselves as the United Indian Nations, these leaders held multinational meetings on at least a half dozen occasions between 1785 and 93. And some of their early communiques were drafted most likely by the English-educated Mohawk Joseph Grant, a Revolutionary War veteran who acted early on as the United Indian spokesman. But their communiques to the United States all had the same basic message. Keep your people east and south of the Ohio River. Don't cross into what is now the modern states of Ohio, Indiana, and Illinois. The Confederacy, or rather the military Confederacy that the Great Lakes Indians put together at the same time, included, however, a lot of people for whom an Ohio River boundary was less important than other objectives, like gaining military glory or simply helping out friends. Many of the members of the Great Lakes Indian Confederacy, the United Indians, were Ottawas and Ojibwas from the upper Great Lakes. Their warriors had less of an interest in ensuring that there would be no white American settlements or outposts north of the Ohio River. And when the United Indians Confederation undertook its final campaign in 1794, many of those warriors went home after the initial battles were over. Their departure allowed the U.S. Army to defeat the other warriors of the Confederation in the decisive Battle of Fallen Timbers, which was to serve as the prologue to the negotiation of the Treaty of Greenville in 1795 and the cession by the United Indians of about two-thirds of the modern state of Ohio to the United States. Please really briefly trace the rise of Shawnee Prophet Tenskwatawa, his witch hunts, and his Prophetstown uh, sovereign movement. Why do you conceive of autonomy as resting on female subordination and stable borders to a certain extent? Tenskwatawa, whose name means the open door, is an interesting figure in that his legacy seems to have some contradictory elements in it. He belonged to a tradition of separatist Native American prophets extending back at least as far as Neolin. And these prophets, like prophets in the judeo Christian tradition sought both to lead their followers and also to critique their society. And Squatawa, like Neolin, had had a series of visions in which he met the master of life. And he delivered from the master of life a message that was both religious and national. He wanted the Great Lakes Indians, and Squatawa did, to give up what he thought were dangerous religious practices 
like the keeping of medicine bundles or the use of sorcery, which is why he took part in a number of witchcraft trials that erupted throughout the southern Great Lakes region during the second half of the first decade of the 19th century. At the same time, Tenskwatawa wanted to create an economically and politically autonomous nation in the heart of the Great Lakes country. He didn't see that his spiritual and political messages should be separated. If this nation centered on the town of Prophetstown was to be economically autonomous, it needed to have a high level of food production. And since women traditionally worked as farmers in Native American communities, this meant to some extent exploiting women's labor and punishing women who tried to run away from this somewhat coercive new state. In the meantime, establishing an autonomous community, politically autonomous community, meant establishing a defined and a defensible land base defined by firm borders. And I think this helps explain why Tenskwatawa and his eventually more famous brother Tecumseh considered the Fort Wayne land session of 1809, which was directly adjacent to Prophetstown and and its lands, as a direct affront to their authority. What was the significance of the 1813 Battle of Moraviantown for Tecumseh's remaining confederacy, and which five groups of Americans subsequently advanced their nation's sphere of influence into the Upper and Western Lakes country during the decade after the War of 1812? The Battle of Moraviantown, which took place in October of 1813, proved to be the climactic battle of the War of 1812 as far as Tecumseh and Tenskwatawa's Indian Confederacy was concerned. In that battle, Tecumseh and a number of his warrior followers were killed, and several hundred British troops surrendered to the Americans. And both events fatally demoralized Tecumseh's and his brother's confederacy. Tenskwatawa spent the rest of the war in Canada as an exile, and other Great Lakes Indians simply left the war altogether if they had been British allies, with the exception of some who remained active in the region of Lake Huron and the upper Mississippi Valley. When the war ended, there were five groups of Americans who expanded American influence within Lake's Indian homelands, whom I identify uh, toward the end of peoples. One of these groups were the treaty commissioners who came into Indian communities and invited chiefs to meet with them and sign over millions of acres of Native American land. The Indians in the southern lakes region, in the lower Great Lakes region, were largely left with small reserves centered on their towns and cash annuity payments from the United States and with very little land. The second group were traders, in this case mostly American traders, who took control of indigenous hunters' trade, often took control of those annuities since traders had the, the least expensive goods for sale. The third group were the soldiers who began to garrison forts within parts of Great Lakes Indian homelands that had previously been ungarrisoned, although many of these forts were located on the British-Canadian frontier, since the United States was in many ways more concerned about Britain after the War of 1812 than Native Americans. A fourth group of intruders were actually, like traders, 
in many ways welcomed by Great Lakes Indians. And these were missionaries from Protestant, occasionally Catholic, but mostly Protestant mission societies. People like William and Amanda Ferry, who set up a school for Ottawa children in Michelin Mackinac, or rather in Mackinac Island, in the 1820s and 30s. Missionaries came to convert Native peoples to Christianity. Native leaders among the Wyandots and Ottawas and others were happy to have them come into their communities if they were willing to teach their children English, which they could see would be a very useful language. And the last group, which the treaty commissioners were trying to prepare the way for, and the soldiers as well, were white settlers who came to set up their communities on Native American land, but in some cases also became Great Lakes Indians trading partners and even tenants if they didn't wish to buy land and instead wish to lease it from Native groups like the Miami. You contend that the Shawnees and Wyandots avoided confrontation with American troops and experienced few casualties during their semi-voluntary migration. How and why were their Western neighbors, like the uh, Miamis and Potawatomis, not so lucky? Also, how did the removed populations adapt to their new reserves in the Tallgrass Prairie? The Miamis and Potawatomis were larger nations than the Great Lakes, Delawares, and Shawnees. And in moving west to Indian territory, the Delawares and Shawnees enjoyed an advantage that the emigrant Miamis and Potawatomis did not, which is that some Delaware and Shawnee people had already migrated to western Missouri and Kansas earlier in the 19th century. And their communities, or rather their families, stood ready to receive and provide aid to subsequent Delaware and Shawnee migrants. This was not the case with the Miamis and the Potawatomis. The Miamis and Potawatomis resisted removal longer than the Delawares and Shawnees did, and they suffered a greater death toll by and large, in part because many of them wished not to remove, even though their chiefs were eventually pressured into signing removal treaties. Several hundred Potawatomis and Miamis either died or became very ill during their compulsory emigration, or they died of sickness soon after arriving in Kansas. Some were able to hide successfully by fleeing to Michigan territory beyond the reach of state officials in Indiana and Illinois. And about a third of the Potawatomis fled to British Canada and avoided removal thereby, since the United States had no authority on the British-Canadian side of the border. Those who were removed and survived found themselves relocated to a region very different from the Great Lakes, ecologically, a western tall grass prairie in Kansas. They found it, obviously, a very challenging environment. Within a few years of their arrival, the removed Lakes Indians began to adapt economically by expanding some earlier experiments they'd made in commercial farming and particularly in raising livestock, which became an important source not only of food, but also of saleable commodities like meat and animal hides. Some of the removed Lakes Indians, like the Shawnee planter Joseph Parks, became very successful at these enterprises, and others enjoyed at least some modest success selling provisions to overland travelers crossing Kansas on their way to California. The Delawares and the Kickapoos concurrently remained active in 
their old trading and hunting economy by becoming intermediaries in the Comanche Indians' horse and bison trade. They headed down into Texas or into Oklahoma in order to sell trade goods or grain or foodstuff to the Comanches in exchange for bison robes and horses. And most of the Lakes Indians removed to Kansas tried to reclaim some of their old political sovereignty by organizing national governments and by setting up institutions, particularly schools, that those national those national governments rather would run. For the Lakes Indians, how was the United States Civil War an international, indeed imperial, conflict? Specifically, what happened to removed Ho-Chunk's peoples during and after the 1862 Dakota War? Well, I think the Civil War was certainly an imperial war from the standpoint of indigenous peoples in the Western United States. Both of the two belligerents, the United States and the Confederacy, were fighting for a territory, namely the Trans-Missouri United States, that was occupied by indigenous people. And both of them were seeking indigenous military allies, just as the British and the French and the United States had sought to do a century earlier. Famously, the Confederacy found military allies among the Chickasaws and Cherokees and other removed southeastern Indians in Oklahoma. And the United States recruited Ottawa and the Nominee Riflemen into its army, while American-aligned Shawnees conducted raids into Confederate Texas. Less directly, the war produced an atmosphere of anti-Confederate paranoia in some northern states and in the Union press. And some in the Union attributed the insurgency of Little Crow, the known as the Dakota War of 1862, to Confederate agents. And I think it was this fear of Confederate infiltration and involvement that contributed to the Union government's decision, famously, to execute 38 Dakota men, the largest mass hanging in American history, in December of 1862, and then to deport the Minnesota Dakotas and the Ho-Chunks as well, to South Dakota. Now, the Ho-Chunks, who were originally from Wisconsin, had undergone multiple deportations from their homeland. First, they'd been sent to Iowa, then they went to central Minnesota, and then they went to southern Minnesota, where they were asked to begin experimenting with commercial farming, which they did, and they actually made a very competent living at it, so competent that their white settler neighbors wanted to take over Ho-Chunk farmland for their own. During the Dakota War, after the Dakota War, white settlers in Minnesota grabbed their chance and persuaded the U.S. Army to move the Ho-Chunks, even though they had nothing to do with the Dakota War, into South Dakota. Many of the Ho-Chunks, not a majority, but several hundred at least, died of hunger there in the winter of 1862-3. The survivors of that early winter and those early years realized that exile, which they had tolerated for the previous few decades was no longer compatible with their physical survival. Many of them moved illegally back to Wisconsin during the 1860s and 70s. And there they found that while there were many white settlers in Wisconsin, they had come to see Native Americans not so much as threats or competitors, but as exotic peoples who might just be worthy of a more powerful nation's help. And in this spirit of paternalism, they helped the Ho-Chunks file individual land claims which would be very hard for a a private property defending state and federal government to overturn, 
under the Homestead Acts of 1862 and 75. A nice irony, given that the 1862 Homestead Act was designed to help white settlers replace Indians. So I actually have a final question. What can we expect from you next? Are you working on a future on another project? Um, or are you taking a vacation? Uh, what are you doing next? I've got two book projects in the pipeline right now. One is a study of the Chickasaw Indians' encounter with market economies and capitalism during the 18th and 19th centuries. And that book project, which is tentatively titled To Be Men of Business, uh, should be moving into its next stage later this year when I complete the first manuscript of the book. Uh, and my next book project after that is going to be a study of the relationship between Native American treaty making and Native American national sovereignty, a project that I have tentatively titled The Sovereign People. Excellent. We hope that you uh, remember the New Books Network for those uh, future publications. I really appreciate uh, you being on the show today, Professor Nichols. Thank you, Ryan. It's been a real pleasure. So the book is uh, Peoples uh, of the Inland Sea by Professor David Nichols, published by Ohio University Press. I'm Ryan Tripp on the New Books Network's Native, Native American Studies channel. Please tune in next time.